You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Well, all power to the people. Hope you are all safe and well, especially those of you who have been out in the streets marching for change. Our thoughts and love are with you. And here we are. In week 13 of the lockdown, my name is Peter, and on behalf of City Lights, I'd like to welcome you to our City Lights Live virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the shelter-in-place. A word about what's been happening, we find ourselves living in an historic moment. Uh, The call for change, the demands for justice, the rejection of state-sponsored violence, and a commitment to anti-racism is something that City Lights has been in support of since its inception. Uh, Through the books we feature in the store to the books we publish, our commitment to supporting the cause of justice and the fight against racism is built into the City Lights mission. Uh, At the store over the years, members of our staff have generated reading lists that address the issues of the day and support progressive viewpoints. Our most recent edition is our anti-racist reading list. It's been posted on our homepage on a website. Uh, We encourage one and all to please check it out and spread the word. Uh, At the moment, City Lights is open for a limited curbside service. Uh, We are gradually working towards allowing the public back into the store following CDC and San Francisco Health Department guidelines. For now, you may order books by phone and pick them up at our entrance. Uh, We can also ship books. Our temporary business hours are going to be from Monday through Saturday, 12 noon to 6 p.m. The fight for justice is something that the subject of tonight's featured title has in common with the happenings that are taking place at large all around us. We are delighted to have with us tonight Jennifer Worley celebrating the release of her new book, Neon Girls, A Stripper's Education in Protest and Power, published by HarperCollins. It follows the trajectory of Jennifer Worley's life if she found herself supplementing her income to pay for her education by working as a stripper in the legendary Lusty Lady Theater in North Beach. Of course, this wasn't your run-of-the-mill strip club. Many of the women working there were intellectuals who were as comfortable talking about feminist theory as they were producing radical zines that incidentally, uh, they oftentimes sold at City Lights just around the corner So there is some very interesting linkage here. So this is as much a story about gender politics, the fight for equality, union organizing, as much as it is a picture of a kind of a bygone San Francisco. So we're hoping you all purchase a copy. Uh, We'll be posting a link in our retail portal um, uh, that's going to be on bookshop.org in the chat function on your screen. So you can purchase the book at any time throughout the course of the event. So a few words about our guest. Jennifer Worley was a founding organizer of the Exotic Dancers Union and the work of co-op at the Lusty Lady Theater in San Francisco. Her film, Sex on Wheels, documents the history of San Francisco's sex industry and has played at film festivals and universities around the world. Her writing has appeared in Captive Genders, Invisible Suburbs, Bitch Magazine, The Queerist, and she's also appeared on Outright Radio. She teaches English, LGBT studies, and women's studies at City College of San Francisco, where she has served as the president of the faculty union. Uh, She grows her own tomatoes, has won prizes for writing, swimming, mechanical bull riding, and much more. Neon Girls is her first book. Uh, Jennifer, we'll be taking questions tonight. We'll have a Q&A at the end of the evening, so please use the chat function. Actually, you can also, uh, you know, make statements, comments, stuff like that. Uh, when you raise your hand, uh, we will pick you out of the audience uh, for the Q&A. So, everyone, welcome to City Lights. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter, and thanks for organizing this. And thanks so much, everyone, for coming. It's so great. It's really nice to actually see all the faces and a lot of those incredible uh, women that Peter referenced are here. Um, wow, I didn't think I would cry just <laughs> at the start, but um, 
yeah, so it's so good to see you guys. Um, it was a long time ago. Um, so I'm going to read a, um, two selections from the book. The first is about my first shift working at the Lusty Lady. And, um, and the second is going to be about um, our, an, on the, a job action that we did later on, several years after, uh, after I'd been working there when we were organizing our union. Um, so the first scene actually takes place, uh, I, I've, I've auditioned and I've been hired at the Lusty Lady. And I've gone in for my first shift ever to work there. And I've been in the dressing room getting ready. And I've met one other dancer. Her name is Cinnamon. Um, and we are heading up to the stage. And this, uh, I read this to a friend who reminded me that often describing the stage at the Lusty Lady is really important because it was so different from what people... Uh, imagine it was not a proscenium stage with um, one single performer up elevated and then an audience down below. It was really different. And I've asked Caitlin, uh, I sent Caitlin a picture of it. And it's a picture that has been published in the Atlantic magazine and that was from a photo shoot. It's not surreptitious or anything like that. But um, Caitlin, can you just sh share the photo so people can have a sense of what the stage actually looked like? So that's the stage and um, it's this photo is taken from inside of a booth. So the, the customers would be in these little booths and they would look through a window like you're seeing and the window shade would go up and down as they put money in and the money ran out. Um, so that's what it, that's what it looked like. Thanks Caitlin. Um, just for a little bit of context uh, because that's going to be important in this section. Okay. So, um, so, I'm, I'm about to enter the stage for my first time. At the top of the stairs, Cinnamon pulled a time card from the rack and shoved it into the time clock, which made a punching sound familiar to me from fast food and bookstore jobs. I searched the cards, organized alphabetically by last name, found my own, and punched in before following Cinnamon down the dark, narrow hallway to the stage. Our arrival triggered a quiet choreography. A dancer with dark curly hair waved sweetly at an open window and purred perm as she slid past me to the exit. Hearing her, a slim pale blonde in pink shoes floated silently off stage in her wake. Remaining in the little mirrored room with me and Cinnamon were a busty blonde with a beauty mark and sleepy lidded Marilyn Monroe eyes and a white girl with low pumps and understated jewelry. But for her nudity, she looked like she might be working in an insurance office. Cinnamon approached one of the full length mirrors at the corner booth and lay down on her back in front of it. I danced, but the windows on my side of the stage closed one by one and the faces from those windows reappeared near Cinnamon, craning to get a better view. Soon she was surrounded by five open windows as she slowly slid her legs open and closed and then turned and knelt on her hands and knees. Suddenly there was a knocking sound and in the mirror I saw three faces in one window and six pointing waving hands beckoning cinnamon. She ignored them but the insurance office lady snapped to attention. Uh-oh, nope. One to a booth, naked office lady announced sternly, shaking her fingers at the, at the offenders. The three 19-year-old boys in the booth stared dumbly, then smirked at her. You and you, snapped like naked office lady, pointing at two of them. Out. They stayed, laughing and looking unconcerned, so she stalked over to them, turned around, and slid down the glass, her back and shoulders pressed against the window completely blocking their view of the nude women. I could hear them object noisily until one of them yelled frantically at the others, get the fuck out, man! A door creaked, then two more reveal the stricken faces of the two delinquents, no longer laughing. Mean naked office lady moved away from, one of the, window, from the window she'd been blocking and nodded calmly. That's better. I watched in awe as she danced sternly in front of the three boys who no longer made a sound, but just stared, chastised. This was a brave new world where nude women could so efficiently disrupt a homosocial bro fest and instill in a gang of unruly boy men 
a state of near total obedience. This wouldn't work with cat collars on the street, but the lusty stage, I realized, was actually designed so that the women could control and channel access to visual pleasure. This woman was using a very simple but very powerful carrot and stick technique to exercise power. Our naked bodies were the carrot and her back was the stick. Observing this choreography of withholding and allowing, I ceased fretting over my possible loss of feminist consciousness, wondering instead how I might learn to exercise the power I saw naked office lady wield. She noticed me watching her. I haven't worked with you before, she said to me without taking her policing eyes off the troublemakers. What's your name? Polly, I replied. Hey, Polly. I'm Grenadine, she said, finally smiling and looking my way. We call her Grenade, said the Maryland lookalike, eyes in the window before her. I'm Shishi, she said, placing both feet on the windowsill, bending her knees, hands gripping the lucite bars uh, bolted vertically on either side of the window. Shishi, I asked the blonde like French for fancy? No, she, she, like English, for lesbo, she replied. Then a new dancer appeared in the doorway, misting a paper towel from a spray bottle and wiping off the bottoms of her white patent leather platform stilettos. Seeing her, Shishi fluttered her fingers and winked at the man in her window, then strode to the stage door, murmuring, perm. Hearing her, Cinnamon smiled at her customer and followed Shishi off stage as the new girl stood on, followed by Grenadine from break. When I asked, Grenadine explained that perm meant that a dancer's shift was over, so the next one in line could start her break. If my break fell 10 minutes before the end of my shift, Grenadine advised, I was to say lucky instead of perm. Why don't you just say I'm off, I asked, mystified by this strange cipher. Because we don't want the customers to know we're leaving. That way they can't follow us home. The girl who had replaced Shishi was tall and statuesque with, full sh um, with, with a shiny red wig. After a few songs, she pulled up alongside me to dance for the window next to mine and whispered, hey, I'm Star. Polly, I answered, regretting my own feeble moniker. Why didn't I think of a cool name like Star or Shishi? Are you new? Yeah, it's my first shift, I answered. Close your door, Star yelled suddenly, startling me. I realized she was talking to a customer in the booth in front of her. He didn't respond, just stared at her. Star pointed, your door, close it. Still no response. She knelt down in front of the window and spoke sweetly, maternally, as if talking to a cute, eager to please dog that wanted the treat, but didn't understand the command sit. Well, you're just a big dum-dum, aren't you? Looking simultaneously chagrined and pleased, the man in the booth nodded, eager to assent to anything she suggested. There was a confidence in her technique that made it as effective and forceful as the grenadine method I'd observed earlier. I was shocked at first, but then deeply impressed by Starr's display of condescension for a customer and amazed to see the man accept her insult as his due. Just like the gang of boys Grenadine had so handily corralled into separate booths, this hapless fellow seemed prepared to acquiesce to any petty directive or endure any trite abuse in exchange for the pleasure Star could either grant or withhold. Unlike in the service industry jobs I'd had, servility and, friendless, uh, servility and friendliness might not serve me here, I saw. Indeed, to my surprise, the lusty seemed to require the opposite, an air of mild but unconcealed scorn, an assumption that the customer was always wrong. After the big dum-dum had finally closed his door, Star reprimanded another firmly for giving orders and banging on the glass. After several warnings, she barked, get out. When he disregarded her and refused to leave, she placed her back firmly to his window, blocking his view like Grenadine had done. He smacked his open palm against the window in anger, then left the booth, banging the door open so it hit the wall. I assumed he was gone for good, but 10 minutes later, he reappeared in a nearby window. Spotting him, Star strode across the stage purposefully, poised to enforce her edict. 
But he looked at her wide-eyed and announced proudly and conciliatorily, I'm back with a new attitude for you. Star looked cautious and skeptical. You are, huh? Yeah, I'm not going to act up no more, he declared earnestly like a child. I'm going to show some respect, okay? Star broke, up, broke into an amused smile. Okay, then, let's do this. I was astonished. Watching these women work shook my preconceptions about stripping and strippers. Here were Grenadine and Star setting boundaries, commanding respect, and exactly what they could and could not do. This was a far, a, far, a far cry from the degradation and sexism I'd understood to be at the heart of the sex industry. And as I watched these women work, I questioned my own beliefs. No, their actions didn't right any real world wrongs. They didn't eliminate domestic violence or the pay gap, but they challenged these particular men's assumptions. Sure, I knew the sex industry was rife with exploitation and that sex work wasn't some magical site of feminist revolution but neither I realized was it ground zero for women's abject subordination or some black hole of agency in which women are robbed of all power to resist or speak out. Operating in this female-centered workspace in which men were quite literally peripheral or sequestered in dark little closets at the edge of our stage, I watched and learned from these lusty ladies who exerted such calm and total power over the men who entered their domain. So I'm going to skip now um, to a couple of years uh, in the future. And at this point, um, I've, um, I've moved on from marveling at the, the incredible uh, power of these women. And, you know, I've begun to understand a lot of the problems at the theater, as we all have. And um, some of those problems have really come to a head. We decided that we needed to solve them by, um, by acting collectively. And we formed a union and um, we, uh, we had a, um, a union election, a, a, labor, a National Labor Relations Board election and one um, recognition for our union and, uh, called the Exotic Dancers Union. And um, we are now about to engage in um, contract negotiations. So once we've got the union recognized, it's now we need to, um, to get a contract. And a number of our comrades have volunteered to act as our bargaining team. Um, a number of them are in the audience right now. Hello. Um, so, so that's where we are right now, that we're about to head into bargaining our first contract. When our bargaining team, Velvet, Jane, Naomi, Isis, Decadence, and support staff Scott, um, arrived at the bargaining table to negotiate, management simply rejected all our proposals out of hand or quibbled over petty issues. After a few months of this, and it was now early 1997, we realized that they were trying to run down the clock. If a year passed and we hadn't agreed upon a contract, management could claim a stalemate and petition for union decertification. Not only would we not have a contract, but we would lose our union and management would almost certainly fire all of us organizers and get us blacklisted around town. We needed to pressure them to come to the table for real, but how? The answer, as was so often the case at the Lusty Lady, was between our legs. In assembly line jobs, workers sometimes use a work to rule action to pressure management to make changes. This involves all workers agreeing to do the bare minimum required by their contract or job description, which results in a slowdown of production. This hurts profits, but it doesn't endanger anyone's job because technically everyone's doing what they're obligated to do. But simply dancing more slowly wouldn't accomplish this in our case, obviously. So we devised a strategy that would. Normally, our stage performances were quite explicit. We would bend over in front of the windows or face them with one foot up on the windowsill. Um, and while, these, while, these, while the performance of explicit shows was the unspoken norm at the Lusty, the performer standards that we'd all been handed when we were hired did not state that we were required to perform this explicitly. They only said we needed to be one nude and two, paying attention to the open windows, and three, making eye contact with the customers. 
So we decided that our slowdown would entail collectively working to this rule. We would be naked, pay attention, and make eye contact, but nothing else. We would eschew the explicitness of our usual performances in order to frustrate customers, slow down business, and pressure management to negotiate. We publicized the upcoming slowdown openly to dancers, not only to make sure everyone participated, but also to let management know that we were united, willing, and able to hurt their bottom line if they wouldn't negotiate with us. When the day of the action came, the show directors were watching from their private observation booth behind their very own one-way glass. Things seemed to be going well during my, during my first pink out shift. No one broke ranks and the stage was silent except for the music and the occasional murmur of perm to indicate the end of someone's shift. Uh, but when I walked into the dressing room for my break, I found Summer, a 20-year-old dancer with a young son at home, talking quietly with Jane and looking somber. What's up, I asked, concerned. Colette said I have to have a disciplinary meeting before I can work again. Shit, did she say why? No, but she saw me dancing without showing, showing pussy, so that's gotta be it. She's allowed to have a reunion rep in the meeting, added Jane. I'm going with her. I went back to the stage and quietly told the other dancers what was going on downstairs. At 2.15, I heard someone running fast and loud down the hall leading to the stage. Jane appeared at the stage door and yelled, they just fired Summer. I heard others running and yelling, yelling the news backstage and out in the customer area where support staff worked. Let's walk out, I said excitedly. The other girls moved toward the door, ready to throw down. No, Jane hissed urgently. They can definitely fire you for that. Stay here. Keep dancing. She took off back down the hall. I kicked off my heels and ran to the dressing room where I used a Sharpie to write on my hands. Don't spend money here. Unfair to labor. I went on stage and showed the other dancers and passed around the Sharpie. We, we danced around, placing our hands on our tits and asses as we stuck them in the windows where our message could reach the customers. When my shift was over, I dressed quickly and ran outside. A group of dancers and support staff were at the theater entrance, making picket signs that read, rehire summer, unfair to labor, negotiate, don't retaliate. I took a marker and one of the poster boards someone had brought and made a sign, honk for strippers rights. Throughout the afternoon and the evening, more dancers showed up for the picket. Because this wasn't an actual strike, we told those scheduled to work to do their shifts as usual and join us afterwards, since they could be fired for not showing up. The next morning, I biked to the theater at 9 a.m. Sorsha, Jane, Octopussy, Amnesia, and Scott were already there, making more signs and laying out those we'd made the day before. As we began our picket, a few more dancers and support staff showed up. Our little demonstration walked, waved signs, and chanted, rehire summer. Octopussy handed out our hot pink quarter sheets, explaining the situation and urging customers to boycott the theater. Some complied, but others skittered past us into the theater for their morning session. At 9.15, about 15 people we didn't know, mostly 40-ish African-American and Latina women older and more professionally dressed than our scraggly little group, came walking up Telegraph Hill toward us. One of them, one of them was carrying a bullhorn. Uh-oh, I thought, are they cops? Or When they reached the theater entrance, I saw that they were carrying bunches of professionally printed picket signs, stapled to sticks, reading, unfair to labor, SEIU. Without a word, they each took a sign and fell into line with us, walking in a long, thin oval in front of the theater. The woman with the bullhorn listened to our, our chant, two, four, six, eight, don't go here to masturbate. And without a hint of hesitation, began shouting it through the bullhorn for others to repeat. When that chant grew stale, she switched to a call and response format to teach us some picket line standby, which rights are under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back, became strippers rights are under attack, what do we do? Get dressed, fight back. Um, and no justice, no peace became no contract, no pussy. As we walked the line, I asked the woman in front of me, are you from the SEIU office? Oh no, I work at City Hall in the assessor's office. SEIU just put out a call last night that some sisters needed backup on a, pick out, a picket line and I wasn't working today, so I came out to support you. 
Most of these strangers were members of different workplaces that had affiliated with SEIU, but some were members of totally different unions who had gotten calls from the San Francisco Labor Council that we needed support and they came out to provide it. I was amazed. I hadn't thought that regular people with real jobs would care, much less come out on their days off to join our picket for the whole city to see. Yet here were all these other professional city workers, nurses, and bus drivers showing up to help us carry the weight of our struggle. The group grew larger as the morning wore into afternoon. Passersby stopped and took flyers. Crowds gathered and stared. When word got out that the Lusty Ladies dancers were picketing at the theater, TV vans screeched up and newscasters with their centaur costumes, business suits on top for the camera, jeans and sneakers on the bottom, out of frame, surrounded us asking for comment. We were, after all, a curious occurrence, not just because of our jobs, but because our organizing defied a decades long trend of decreasing union membership throughout the US. While the larger union movement labored unsexily against the tide of late capitalist globalization with formerly union jobs going overseas and membership dropping perilously from 30% at mid-century to 11% in the 90s, the lusty ladies served as a perky counter-narrative to this story, the unlikely standard bearers for a movement everyone had believed was dying. When the cameras showed up, some of the dancers donned wigs and sunglasses to protect their privacy, while others ducked out of the demonstration. But with the solidarity of all the nurses, bus drivers, and teachers who'd showed up to support us, our picket line stayed strong. Union advisors had told us we couldn't physically block the entrance, and our picket line had to keep moving, but we didn't need to use force. By talking, yelling, and occasionally shaming, we managed to empty the theater completely within a few hours. We stayed out front all night, chanting and laughing, carrying signs into the street, posing with, for, for photos with tourists and giving interviews. Customers hung out and chatted and two city supervisors stopped by to give fiery speeches, encouraging us to stay strong. Fire engines drove slowly past honking horns and lights flashing, firefighters hanging out the windows and cheering us on. A year before, I'd been relieved and thankful for the help of SEIU alone, but now it felt like all of San Francisco was there with us. I was overwhelmed with gratitude that all these people, rather than looking down at us because of what we did for a living, were willing to celebrate us, not as performers on a stage, but as fellow workers whose struggle was their struggle. The very presence of these comrades seemed to lift us up in defiance of a world that would shame us to take that shame and throw it back in the faces who dare, of those who dared disrespect us. The next day when I arrived at the theater, I learned that Naomi and Decadence were meeting with management in the office. When they emerged from the dark theater lobby, we stopped picketing and gathered around. Summer got her job back, Decadence announced, and they wanna open the live show again tomorrow if we'll go back to work. And they'll be at negotiations next week with new proposals. We were stunned for a moment. And then a shriek of victory went up from the crowd of dancers. We all grabbed for Summer who cried and laughed in disbelief and gratitude and allowed herself to be passed around and hugged. We celebrated there on the sidewalk, heady with our own strength, ordinary girls suddenly endowed with a power we'd never known, invincible. Um, so I'm going to, uh, thanks everyone. That's, I can't hear, it's so weird that you're all silent, um, but thank you. Um, so yeah, do we want to take some, um, some questions? If you can raise your hands, Jenny can pick you out of the audience. It's me, Grenadine. No shit, hi! Oh my god. <laughs> oh, hi Grenadine. I, just want, I don't have a question, I just wanted to tell you I love you. Oh, thank you. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I did you justice. <laughs> I I don't have any recollection of any of that, but it was great. <laughs> um, 
Um, I had a question. It's so vivid. Your descriptions are really amazing and vivid and visceral and really make us feel like we're there on the stage with everybody. Um, I'm wondering if you kept notebooks or journals this during that time, or did you go back and write some essays or like, how did you collect all the memories and sort of strain them back together again? Because yeah. I know be hard. Yeah, thanks. It's because it was, you know, over 20 years ago. Well, when I wrote this, it was more, it was between 15 and yeah, 20 years ago. But yeah, um, I, I did, I did keep um, notebooks and journals at the time. And, um, and do like a lot of reflective writing about what it was like working there and what it meant. Um, and then and I also did sort of retrospective writing about it um, a couple of years after um, but then I also have a kind of freakishly good memory about um, certain things like not about everything and not about every detail but like that story about you know some about star saying like you're just a big dum-dum like I just remember things like that um, very um, clearly and then you know a character like Will Grenadine um, uh, Jennifer Grenadine is she just had a very strong personality who and as did so many of the women. So it was, even though there were hundreds, I worked on and off at the Lusty for over 10 years. And so I, you know, I knew hundreds of people, uh, but obviously the, the people I chose as characters in the story are the people who had very strong, either a very strong role in the unionization or just an incredibly strong personality or persona um, on stage. And so those are the people I chose to, um, to bring forward. Um, what made you, I mean, you had said that you, this was 20 years later almost, that you're yeah. working on the book. What made you decide, like, why this moment? Why now? Yeah. Well, first I got a sabbatical. <laughs> and so I, I'm, I, you know, I, uh, um, I'm an instructor at City College and I w had put in my time and I got my first sabbatical. Um, and I was looking for a project and I had actually written a proposal for a whole different project that was more in line with my academic work. And while I was writing it, I, the Lusty had just closed and all of the files and junk and boxes were in my office like that I had volunteered. I, I don't know what I was thinking, but um, I volunteered. OK, I'll store the stuff. We didn't know where to put it. And so I got in touch with the, you know, the people who were with. I don't know. If, I think Pandora is not here tonight, but I said, OK, I can take it. So I was in my office writing a proposal for my um, my sabbatical project and I was surrounded like it was like I had to walk through an aisle of storage boxes to get to my desk um, so the whole office was just filled with lusty detritus and I'm and I had written this whole proposal and then I was just like looking at all this stuff and like you know my proposal was for archival research and mid-century lesbian literature right and I was like this is a fucking archive like I'm not gonna like this is an incredible archive and it's in my house and I'm not going to let it go without, um, without telling the story or at least my story of, of it. So that's how it, it was like the physical presence of all this stuff in my apartment that actually motivated me in that moment. Great. I just wanted to say that was, um, Oh, so good. That was so Thank good. You. I laughed. I cried. <laughs> um, I knew the story and it was such a beautiful retelling. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And I also, you know, was just wanted to share this afternoon. I was just hearing about this Portland stripper strike that's happening right now where a um, bunch of strippers in Portland, which if folks don't know, Portland has more strip clubs per capita than any city in the United States. Um, yeah. And they are doing a stripper strike um, to improve for more equitable working conditions for black strippers and also saying that dancers are saying they're not going to go back to work and reopen the clubs until the Portland Police Department is defunded. And oh, it's just oh such okay. a cool example of like that, um, you know, solidarity um, across yeah. industries and um, yeah, so anyways, folks can check out. I think the hashtag is PDX stripper strike. Um, oh, check that out. I hadn't heard about it. That's amazing. That's called organizing for the common good, right? Like you right? get you take the, you know, you take an issue that's public that doesn't is not a working condition, but you use your your um your organizing and your contract negotiations to to mo move it. So PDX stripper strike? Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Cool. Um 
first of all, hi. So hi. Nice to see you. <laughs> and um, also, uh, where did so all the stuff that was in your apartment? Where did it? I know it, it's gone through like a couple movements through like Center for Sex and Culture, right? Had it for a while, and I, I just was curious where it all ended up. Well, the boxes of stuff, Pandora moved them to a storage space, um, and I don't know where that is. But and then Center for Sex and Culture um, had a lot, um, had a lot of the. Uh, I'm moving to um, uh, the other part of my apartment because I'm going to show you something. But Center for Sex and Culture had a lot of the um, the signage and stuff. But I have a lot of it in my apartment. Like, I've, I mean, I've become kind of a museum of it, and I have um, the private pleasures sign up there anyway so some of the stuff i have um and i just got it from sex center for sex and culture because they needed a place to take it um when they closed um and then the records i know pandora destroyed the ones that could be um destroyed that 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 was appropriate for and then i don't know what's happened i think that there's been some effort to archive i, I know that i've worked with like i think there's three former lesties who are professional librarians now and a few of them have worked on trying to find an archival home for the stuff uh, i know that the labor um the labor history archive in san francisco is interested um um in in holding some of the stuff yeah so i have a question yeah um, could you talk a little bit about the film and then did the film and the book overlap at different points? I mean, what was that like? The, oh, Julia's film? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a, um, Julia Query made a documentary about the, um, about the unionization process and um, I think it came out in like 1999, just a couple of years after we organized. Um, and it's called Live Nude Girls Unite. And um, yeah, there's some overlap. Like that scene, the scene of the protest is, or of the picket is the, um, is in the documentary so you can see that there and you can see you know she got me to reenact writing with the sharpie on my hands for the um for the documentary um so there's some overlap in that but this um the book starts well before that because it starts with me just going to work and and kind of negotiating what it meant to do that work and um and then also just telling the story of all these characters uh it goes through the 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 early part of the unionization process um, where we were just sort of all uh, mobilizing and um, and the, the issues, you know, one of the issues we mobilized was that we were being surreptitiously uh, behind one-way glass. But then another big issue and, um, and the, a dancer named Naomi who is here tonight, um, it, it was really, um, um, crucial and really uh, galvanized the um, racial justice component and for her um, she it was really important the way that that black women were treated at the theater and so um, you know it, it, she's a character in another section where it talks about um, her organizing around that so those were the key issues but then the book also moves beyond the the organizing and the contract and because I I went away and went to graduate school but then I went back to the lusty and um, and worked for a few years uh, after this, and uh, we formed a cooperative at that point. So we took, you know, our um, in one contract negotiation, our boss came to the table and just said, "Okay, I agree to everything that you guys want," which was really weird and scary. And then he just left, and and um, and then the next, you know, a couple of days later, we all got pink slipped, and he said, "I'm closing the theater." Um, I'm closing the theater permanently and you're all laid off. And so then, I, you know, and I was like, I was the old um, lady dancer at that point. And I, you know, and I had been through the union process and I was like, guys, you know, this is bullshit. Like we're practically running the place anyway. And like, why do we even need a boss? Let's take it over. And so we, um, we all, you know, we met and kind of organized again and we, we took it over and ran it as a worker co-op. And um, it ran as a worker co-op for 10 years. Um, and it outlived, there was, a, there was a second Lusty Lady in Seattle, which was actually the original one. That one closed, um, the capitalist one closed um, like five years before the, the collective one. So, you know, we outlived capitalism and, you know, the, the collective Lusty Lady survived for 10 years as just worker owned and worker run. Oh, hey, Loretta. So, hey. So first off, I just have to say, I love your book so much. And it is so funny 
And <clears throat> when I first had the opportunity to read an early draft, it made me laugh out loud so hard, and it still does. Um, I had some questions about your writing process. Um, could you tell me, as the story evolved, um, what were some of the, the shifts that took place, like changes in trajectory, things that you added, things that you left out? Yeah, I mean, I originally, as I said in response to Natalia, I had originally planned it as more of an academic thing and uh, like kind of a little cultural history of this institution. And and then, but then I just had so much personal engagement and in the process, I was just, I kind of let myself um, write pretty freely. And I, uh, the process I made up was my only job is to make words. And uh, every day I have to make X number of words. And I made a really short, I read a really small number. And then as I would exceed that number, I would up it each day, but basically it was just to uh, make it easy on myself. But, um, but I just, you know, I just found that the stories and the characters were so memorable to me. And I just, I wanted to tell those, those personal stories as well. So that's how it became kind of a, a memoir. And um, I wanted, I, I had that. So then, I, I had the vision of, um, did, has anyone, know, does anyone know Samuel Delaney's Times Square Red, Times Square Blue? It's, um, yeah, so it was a little bit like, I kind of modeled it, or I, well, I wish that it was modeled on that, as amazing as that, but that was a model for me. Like he writes this theoretical piece, but then also about his own experience. Um, so, you know, working with that. Um, and then, um, so my my process was pretty haphazard in that way. And then my agent, Lucy Cleland, who I think is also here, was just really amazing about shaping it and, you know, dragging me, kicking and screaming into the editorial process and, and the revision process. Um, I was a very truculent um, reviser. And, um, but she really gave it a, a new shape um, that gave it a narrative. Thanks. Or she made me give it a new shape that gave it a narrative. Okay, good. Yes, uh, I, I also really enjoyed reading. I was so excited to find out that you'd written this book because I oh. knew our wonderful uh, labor union leader. But I wanted to know, how did you choose that job and how much did it pay? Um, yes, that's, um, I, well, that, yeah, that whole process of like, how did I decide to do this is, is in the book. I was working, I was going to grad school, I was studying English at San Francisco State, and um, I was working at a publishing company um, in the East Bay, and I was a, I was a book publicist, and um, I was making a really, I think it was like $11 an hour or something at the time, and um, I just couldn't, um, I couldn't really make rent and study and, you know, do, be a student at, on the amount that I was making. And I just saw an ad in the back of the San Francisco Bay Guardian. Uh, and those ads were in the paper every week for, you know, 30 years or something. The lusty lady come work with us. Um, and so I just, I saw an ad and I went in and, and auditioned and, um, and, and, and I just decided to do it really to make enough money that I would be able to study um, without having to work. So, so we worked about 12 hours a week. I would typically work about 12 hours a week. 15 was like a lot. Um, 15 hours of dancing was a, um, a full um, schedule. And um, it paid, I think the starting wage was like $11 an hour when I started, but then it went up a dollar a week each week um, until you got to, oh God, was it like 22 or something? And then, yes, people are like, no, it's higher. Okay, but then it got higher. Then we got the union. So then we negotiated our contract and then it got, but it was 22 when I started. But then once we got the union, it went up. And I think it was like at 27 after, um, after a couple of contracts, which was substantial in the late 90s for, you know, basically a job that you could get without um, without training and everyone's putting in the yeah 18 to 27 and then there was also a private booth where you could make more money um, or you could make less also but it was commission-based in there where uh, where guys could have one-on-one -on -one conversations with you um, and that private booth is really where the um, the issues of racial justice that um, that Naomi you know raised came up because um, we could make more money in there, but they actually, they didn't schedule any black women to work in the private booth um, at all. And so that was a, that was a huge issue. Um, 
yeah, so we weren't making tons of money, but it was good for, um, you know, for um, a job that you could get without which sort of just walking in and getting it. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Christina. Hi. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm Christina Decadence. Um, and there's always so, um, <laughs> thinking about it was such a special time. And my question is through the process of writing your book, what did you, what did you learn about that time? Or was, is there something from that time that you see in a different way, um, looking at it in retrospect? Yeah. Um, God, that's such a good question. One of the things that I really, when I was writing the part about, do you remember when we were organizing the union, there was initially a lot of conversation about, should we just have our own independent union? And like, what the hell is SEIU? Those are, that's just like these mainstream people and we don't know them. And, um, and then there was like a lot of anarchists also working at the theater and they felt like, okay, let's work, let's go with the um, IWW or let's just have our own, you know, independent and not affiliate. And kind of, I, I was really scared to do that because I was always afraid, like, I'm just going to get fired. Or, you know, there was rumors that a girl organizing in Arizona had been shot in the head in the parking lot or, so, you know, like I was really scared of, um, of what was going to happen. So I wanted this, um, I wanted to have this kind of more um, recognizable union. And in retrospect, I sometimes wish that we had gone with a more, like if we had gone with the Wobblies or, or an independent because I feel like it it could have helped us stay engaged I think um and push the collectiviz collectivization process further so I learned that and then the other thing I really learned was that and I, I think I learned this partly at the time but then later in reflection is that like it's it's harder to um it's easier to fight the power than it is to have the power and um what was really really most difficult about it once we collectivized was and and when we unionized i think was um like when there's an enemy and a boss you can organize and you have this external enemy and that's even though that's hard it's also easy because emotionally we can, we're used to that, like that's authority and we can resist it. But then when you have, once we had control of the theater ourselves and it was a collective, then it was, it was really hard to, um, to know how to wield that power, to be accountable to each other, you know, was a lot harder. It was, it was easy to be allied and to be in solidarity with each other when we had a boss that we were allied in solidarity against. But when we were running it ourselves, um, it became really hard to have accountability. And and I, I don't I don't know if Miss Muffy is here, but I remember her. You know, we were losing a ton of money when we collectivized in the beginning. And I remember her putting up this poster that said, "You know, we're losing. You guys, everyone's fucking off on stage. You know, so and so sleeping on stage, and uh, um, we gotta we gotta get it together because we're we're losing money, and we gotta check ourselves before our wreck we wreck ourselves. And um, and so it, there, but that was a really hard thing. Um, that kind of really owning, um, accountability to your comrades in the absence of an authority figure, I think. Um, and it's something I still see and something I still kind of have not figured out. All right. Hi, I cannot wait to read the book. Super excited now. Um, I wondered if this was uh, your first time, your first experience with a labor union, your first time organizing, and also how it informs your organizing today within your position at City Thank Hall. you. Yeah. So thanks. That's a really good question um, and something I reflect on a lot because writing this book and at the same, like as the book was in the publication process, I... Um, I was elected to, or I guess, yeah, as I was as my agent was shopping it, I was elected to be the president of the um, city college faculty union. And, um, and then, uh, th so I just finished my term doing that um, uh, like a week ago. And um, so 
yes, this was my first time. I didn't know shit before we did this about unions or any of that stuff. We all, I think, I don't know if any of you all knew anything about it, but I think we were all figuring it out as we went along. So this was, this is where I really cut my teeth and where I learned organizing and, and all of that stuff. And so, um, it, I really learned a lot and the way that it, the way that it has, I mean, it's made a huge impression and it, it taught me so much. Like one of the things that I really learned was when you get a contract, um, when you get a, a contract agreement, a tentative agreement, it always kind of sucks. And when we got ours, we didn't, we wanted one really important thing and we were all like, yeah, we're going to get that thing and we're going to demand it or else we're not going to take this contract. And, um, and then the boss wouldn't, accede to it like they wouldn't agree to it at the table and I, re I remember um decadence called me called the dressing room and said like they're not giving it to us we're not going to get that and i like ripped i was like you bitch like why you not get the thing that we said we all wanted you should and the, like it's like this moment of horrible shame in my life that i did that and um but that's like so i understand like when you get a, a tentative agreement negotiating contract it doesn't ever get everything you want and people are all like we'll go back and get the thing, you know? And then it's such a hard, that's the hardest process to me in contract negotiations is people don't quite get that, um, that it's not always that that simple and, and the process of kind of making peace with that. I'm so sorry, Decadence, that I did that 25 years later. <laughs> um, so that, yeah, that's one thing that I've learned and, that, and it comes up every contract like, Every contract that um, negotiation I've been in with AFT, it's like we get a TA and people are like, we didn't get the thing that we wanted. We got all this other good shit, not this other thing and go back and fix it, you know, and, um, and I, get, I have been there and I get how that feels, um, much to my eternal shame. Um, but it's, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's just a, um, it's a feeling we have like it's our workplaces are really powerful and our working conditions are really powerful and um and you know it's really hard to organize and to come together and it's and it's really hard to accept you know getting 90 percent there and not 100 percent where you want to be well if there aren't any more questions i encourage all of you to buy the book uh it is a very compelling read and so much fun and jennifer congratulations um, it's been a real honor to have you and, um, and to see all of you. It's such a great turnout. Thank so so um, everyone, until the next time, uh, fight for justice. Be well, everyone. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.